0: Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast unearthing the intricacies of colonialism. Ha! (laughs) (laughs) Today we have Laura, Lindsay, and Hope. And I just wanted to, thanks for being on, thanks to everyone for being so patient last week and supporting our May Day week off. To be honest, I really needed it, and I'm feeling really rejuvenated after that time off.
1: Good. Yeah, and we also (laughs) want to model what we preach, which means prioritizing self-care and compassion with each other and not overworking ourselves. That's true. That's true.
0: So we usually mention this at the end of the episode, but I just want to let y'all know that we have some really amazing merch on the website, seasonofthebee.com. It's a really some amazing designs by uh, this amazing woman in the DSA, Colleen Ting, and also Darby, I'm forgetting her last name, also in the DSA, but just like rad socialist women making art. And you should go check it out because some of it's going to run out, but also some of it we just want you to have and if you have merch can you just just for fun take a picture of yourself wearing that merch and just tag us and be like hey season of the bitch I got this merch right here and we'll be like nice
2: a retweet <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay so today we're talking about Food sovereignty. We were originally going to combine like food justice and food sovereignty, but they're really quite different issues. And so we're going to do a food justice episode sometime in the near future. But I want to first recognize that we are white women talking about an issue that primarily affects indigenous communities. And we know that we cannot fully feel the pain that indigenous folks feel about these issues, but we will do our absolute best to give this issue justice.
1: Absolutely. Our goal is always to try and signal boost on topics like this. And I think we would also love to continue this conversation in future episodes. So if anyone listening would like to be a guest or know someone who should be, just get at us and we'll get that going. Totally. Um,
0: <laughs> so, first, what is food sovereignty? There's a lot of different ways to think about this, and there's a lot of different definitions out there, so I think it would be helpful to break this down a little bit. Hopefully, you all know what the word sovereignty means, and if you don't, that's totally fine. Sovereignty is mostly used in the context of international relations. We don't invade another sovereign nation because it isn't within our rights as a separate sovereign nation. Obviously, LOL, because that's not how the U.S. fucking works. And we're a bunch of fucked up imperialist dicks. Um, So let's use it in a sentence, shall we? The United States failed to respect the laws of sovereignty when it bombed Syria. The United States (laughs) didn't recognize the sovereign rights of Latin American countries all throughout the 20th century when we militaristically disposed of their democratically elected socialist leaders, etc., 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 (laughs) etc. (laughs) great example thank you thank you (laughs) so much um so essentially it's the rates of a given governing body in this episode we will be focusing on indigenous nations as their own governing bodies to do what they will without outside intervention so already that was a doozy let's add the food piece to it (laughs) (laughs) so Food sovereignty is the right of peoples, communities, and countries to define their own agricultural, labor, fishing, food, and land policies, which are ecologically, socially, economically, and culturally appropriate to their unique circumstances. It includes the true right to food and to produce food, which means that all people have the right to safe, nutritious, and culturally important or significant food and to food-producing resources, and the ability to sustain themselves
1: and their societies. And because I'm a word nerd, um, I looked up the history of the term and found that it was first coined in the 1990s by a group of peasant farm workers called La Via Campesina.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And their website notes that the concept of this concept was developed by the group and brought to the public debate during the World Food Summit in 1996. And I love that they said it represents an alternative to neoliberal policies. Yes, yes, yes.
0: So food sovereignty includes the right to protect and regulate trade, the right to determine how self-reliant they will be, and the right to restrict the depositing of various other products into their markets. Food sovereignty is meant to promote a safe, healthy, and ecologically friendly lifestyle for a given people. However, spoiler alert, among many Native groups, this idea is constantly threatened if if like not completely ignored food sovereignty suggests that people should be able to define their own policies, which are appropriate to their cultures in the United States. The style of farming most commonly used is called monocropping, AKA the production of only one crop over a vast area of land without rotation with other crops, AKA a disaster for soil restoration of any kind, AKA literally the shit that led to the dust bowl. Uh, Yeah, we still fucking do this. In the United States, we specifically monocrop a shit ton of corn, wheat, and soy, and most of our corn is actually inedible to humans. It's generally used for cattle feed.
1: And even when it is for human consumption, a lot of it gets uh, heavily processed, and then is used to produce syrups, oils, and powders that get added to packaged foods. Yeah. So our food is totally homogenized through mass production and
0: application of pesticides and herbicides. The second part of the definition has to do with the ability to produce your own food in your own traditional way. Many native groups cannot produce food on their land at all. The land they were, quote unquote, given, a.k.a. stolen and returned in way worse shape by the federal government, has been despoiled by nucle- nuclear waste, water diversion and overgrazing. Whew. I'm already like shaking because I'm so mad because this thing, this whole topic makes me so mad. <laughs> It's like, ser- like, I don't know, sorry. It's just like, for real, let's just think about this. How much more colonial bullshit can you handle than like, mm, we're going to fucking take over your land, either move you to a completely different plot of land with that's tinier and shittier, or give you a small space within that original land that you were on. Like, it's just like the most fucked up shit on the planet.
2: Mm-hmm. <sighs> One example of this that I found out about, I mentioned on the like body positivity episode that I'm vegan and I realized like shortly after I went vegan that like a lot of quinoa production is, you know, uh, produced through, I don't know, I would say policies that violate food sovereignty Mm -hmm. because like, I mean, I research a lot of what I eat and of course people assume because I'm vegan, I eat a lot of quinoa. But quinoa is primarily produced in, I think it's the Andes, um, amongst, like, indigenous communities there. And those indigenous communities have basically been told by corporations to start producing more quinoa and selling it to white people in America instead of, you know, using it as a staple food for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of this, a lot of people in those cultures don't have enough food. They're like, you know, th- their nutritional uh, needs are compromised because quinoa is really good for you. But when you have less variety in your food, it I mean, you need more nutritionally dense food products. So whereas in America, I can, you know, choose, like I can go to the grocery store and get a million different things to meet my nutritional needs And the communities that have traditionally farmed quinoa, they don't really have those opportunities. And so now they're having, you know, huge nutritional crises because white people want quinoa so badly. It's a Um, perfect
0: combination of colonialism (laughs) and imperialism all at once.
2: (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) Uh, thank you for that sorry i just figured you probably needed a, a breather for a second <laughs> i did thank you much appreciate also no sorry yes no sorries. so during the 1960s and 70s the u.s department of agriculture started the food distribution program on indian reservations currently there are about 276 native nations receiving quote-unquote benefits under this program That number might be much higher now. Um, The USDA does not update their statistics very regularly. This program allegedly, allegedly alleviates hunger issues in many Native communities. However, the types of food offered through this program are not healthy, balanced, or traditional. Some examples from the, quote, USDA foods available for the food distribution program on Indian reservations. This is pulling right from their website are canned canned black beans, canned veggie mix, egg mix, dried package, regular processed cheese, evaporated skim milk, and canned beef. There are some juices and fruits available too, but they are all either canned or bottled and filled with preservatives. Mm. So the types of food given through this program, also known as commodity food, have had really dangerous implications for many indigenous nations. The most obvious negative effect that commodity foods have had on these communities is, and continue to have on these communities is type 2 diabetes. We know that this is an issue specific to the United States because of the prevalence of type 2 diabetes and obesity within the Pima Nation, within the borders of Mexico, are much lower than those in the United States. The Pima are located in the U.S. Southwest and their territory like spans across the U.S.-Mexico border. This suggests that the diabetes many many indigenous communities are facing is actually due to environmental and societal factors instead of genetic factors. A study done by the American Society for Clinical Nutrition said that the increased relative abundance of high-fat foods is directly linked to the increased levels of obesity and type 2 diabetes in Native Americans.
1: So I have to say here that There's been a lot of pressure by sugar and grain industries to blame fat for health issues like this. So the studies are biased and it seems more likely that actually fat isn't the problem. But we go back to blaming processed foods where there's Mm. lots of sugar, preservatives, refined carbohydrates, stripped of nutrients. Totally.
0: Yes. Again, like I think that this also was still part of that older USDA So I'm sure, I mean, maybe they don't even have the information there that they should have, but you're totally right.
1: Yeah. The reason I mentioned that here is because um, a common misconception a lot of people have um, who come from, who are um, Native Americans, feel like the food that they uh, were raised eating isn't healthy because it's high fat. Mm. Um, And so they try to adopt a more, you know, like food pyramid-y, a more mainstream American diet, which is very grain heavy. Um, And end up not seeing health improvements because those guidelines are biased. Yes.
2: It's also very dairy heavy as well. Like most Mm -hmm. societies don't eat dairy in such huge quantities. But the U.S. government has been subsidizing the dairy industry for since like World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're like just stockpiles of surplus government cheese that they're still trying to sell off.
3: So, yeah, we're going to get
2: right (laughs) into that for sure. <laughs> um, so this f-
0: like commoditized food, combined with the inability for indigenous folks to participate in their traditional economy, which is often things that have been passed down over centuries, that leads to a lot of inactivity among uh, many native societies. The limited economic access to meaningful work and the small, shitty pieces of land that they were, quote unquote, given, the shitty food that they are supplied, It all not only leads to type 2 diabetes, but also heightens the amount of alcoholism and depression among this demographic to the point that the levels of alcoholism among native peoples, especially in, I forget exactly the age group among young men, I think it's like in the low 20s, is extremely high, like one of the highest in in the entire United States. So let's get into some actual examples of what we're talking about here. So the Pima, um, which a lot of native societies are like they use one word as like an overarching term for maybe the, a larger region that has a conglomerate of smaller nations within it. So that maybe is helpful clarification for this example. But the Pima, specifically the Tohono O'odham, have historically been known to successfully farm within desert climates. However, with more and more land taken from them and the changing of their environment, farming the already challenging land has become pretty much impossible. The Tohono O'odham live next to the Gila River and close to the Colorado River in Arizona. These rivers, especially the Gila, used to provide enough arable land for the Pima to survive. However, with the continuous damming of both rivers, I mean, like, let's not even fucking talk about the Hoover Dam, but, like, all of it. Like, it's just really... Anyway... The land available to the Pima has been left really parched. The Gila and its main tributary, which is the Salt River, used to carry very large volumes of water. Now, commercial irrigation and municipal water diversions typically leave these rivers completely dry. The Colorado River had one of the most unique fish communities in the world. 75% 75% of those species were found nowhere else in the world. And most of those fish are now gone or endangered, and this obviously leaves the previously arable land completely dry. There have been campaigns recently to redirect the dammed water to the Colorado River for this reason, but I don't have the most... I don't know where what the state of that campaign is at the moment, but I know there are efforts to engage with that. So if you are in the southwest, maybe you can jump in and help out with that. The inability of the Pima to farm the land made them eligible for the USDA commodity food program. These foods, as I said before, are, are extremely unhealthy for most people. The native groups that consume the commodity foods are generally consuming large amounts of dairy. Several health journals document the high likelihood that native people are completely lactose intolerant so the foods that the usda is providing to the native americans are not only unhealthy but also extremely difficult to digest properly so that food combined with the inability to physically work the land leaves the pima with the highest frequency of type 2 diabetes in north and south america Mm. According to the Pan American Health Organization, 51.4% of Pima adults have type 2 diabetes. And this is an old statistic, so it's likely higher. It's It's about five years old. So to recap this fucked up bullshit, the U.S. government dams up the extremely ecologically and culturally important river to bring water into cities that shouldn't even fucking exist, like Las Vegas, ship the Pima off to marginalized land, and give them foods that cause them to be extremely sick. Wow, nice work, everyone. Really nice work. (laughs) Uh, But... You know, food sovereignty doesn't just mean agriculture. It also means access to traditional foods and food harvesting practices, whatever that may be. So many Native American nations have used fishing throughout their entire history as an integral part of their culture, spirituality, and community. Unfortunately, many non-Native communities and also environmentalists, it's often under the banner of environmentalism. So just fucking check yourself real quick if you're one of those people so many of these non-native communities have vigorously fought against the rights of native american fishing communities one of these communities is the chippewa and their right to fishing the walleye in northern wisconsin and the macaw with their whaling practices in the northwest sorry had to burp (laughs) leave that in (laughs) (laughs) will do (laughs) native american fishing rights were something that was granted by the federal government after recognition of how important fishing and whaling was to specific indigenous cultures this has become a tricky issue when the federal government attempts albeit half-heartedly to honor these treaties as they should and the state and local governments try to oppose them Local communities have been extremely fucked up to Native American fishing communities and have made it very difficult for Native Americans to connect to their ancestors through their traditional practices. In the film Lighting the Seventh Fire, which you should watch if you want to just cry, the, local, <laughs> the locals of northern Wisconsin fought against indigenous fishing practices. They would have sayings such as save a walleye, spear an Indian, and keep Indian propaganda out of our schools written Ooh. on a bunch of signs in protest of the Chippewa. Yeah, they're just a bunch of fucked up people. White yeah. um, <laughs> right, people. Stop it. I know. <laughs> and this is like not that long ago, right? Like this is fucking happening still. So in the film, the Chippewa were shot at, sniped at, attacked by rocks, and put in danger by nails on the roads. Um, to like try to like bust their tires and and get them in massive car accidents Uh, when the men would go out to spear the walleye the women children and elderly would be attacked on shore because when they would do this it would be an entire ceremony and so generally the entire community would come out for it and so the people who weren't actually out there spearing the walleye would be attacked on the shore like physically and verbally attacked This indigenous community put themselves at risk over and over again to continue to practice their traditional rights as people, but the local community just continued to be really aggressive and fucked up about this. So, that's in northern Wisconsin. The Macaw had very similar reactions to their whaling practices in the northwest. Environmentalists would protest the killing of the gray whale in a similar fashion to the local community of northern Wisconsin. I... I just want to recognize here that killing a whale sounds really, really intense, but just hear me out on all this stuff that I'm going to get to. And side note, if you're an environmentalist who doesn't take into account indigenous cultural practices, I don't feel like you're actually an environmentalist. Sorry, not sorry. So, for example, (laughs) the Chippewa have never come close to harvesting even half of the fishing population, which is not even something that gets taken into account with, like, Boston fishing communities or, like, other uh, colonial fishing communities. The tourism fall off is due to the local community overfishing the walleye, as well as the population decline due to development, pollution, habitat loss, and erosion. The Chippewa community does not contribute to the habitat loss of the walleye like the white community. The decline in walleye population that this local community created for themselves cannot be blamed on the Chippewa. Similarly, the macaw community is extremely environmentally conscientious. When the gray whale was on the endangered list, they stopped whaling for over 70 years. They are allowed to take 20 whales over a five-year period through their international treaties, and they don't ever take that much. Sometimes they take as few as one whale per year. The macaw only take what they need. They are always selective in which whales they choose. They don't kill pregnant whales or anything like that the local community affects the whale population way more through their use of boating and cruising throughout the ocean so the communities that are protesting the macaw whaling aren't even looking at the other major contributors to whale population loss including japanese consumer consumerism associated with whaling the tourism industry, a.k.a. whale tours, and the plastics industry. Like, if you don't think the fucking plastics industry is killing whales, like, I just don't fucking know. Okay.
1: The Mac have a sacred bond. <laughs> you just got really, like, Midwestern mad there. You were like, I just don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> I feel like Buffalo is the
0: Midwest of New York State, so I feel like that's totally fine. I
1: think that's
0: true. <laughs> I
2: think it's really significant that, I mean, I think that the reason that white people are much more aggressive to Native people who practice, like, whaling and hunting ceremonies um, is that, like, when white people do even more damage, it's done so indirectly. Mm. And it's much more personal when Native communities do it. I mean, they do way less. But because it is direct, it's it's really easy to look at that and say, like, that's the problem. They're actively, you know, hurting this one weird fish population or they're actively killing whales when, like, just by, you know, using a straw every time you go out to eat, you are also <laughs> contributing to killing whales. And
0: I think racism is totally part of it, too. <laughs>
2: Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. I don't discount that at all. I just, I don't know. I think that, yeah, white people are just much more willing to ugh, look at, I think the fewer inferential steps people have to make, mm. the easier it is for them to be mad. Totally. Uh, but that's not at all an excuse.
0: No, it's for definitely, sure.
2: it definitely boils down to racism. <laughs> yes.
0: And I mean, Most indigenous communities would argue or at least like have argued that being connected in that way and and doing these things in a very direct way is what keeps them connected to things. Um, Mm -hmm. And even a lot of hunters, no matter what their background, talk about this pretty regularly, too, is when you are doing something like using the whole animal, whether it's a deer you're hunting in the Northeast or a gray whale in the Pacific Northwest, that gives you a whole different perspective on what mm-hmm. that animal can do. And a lot of indigenous communities focus on giving giving that animal another purpose through the way that they can use it. And I think that that's like also... We, we purposefully like shy away from our, the way our food is made, predominantly our, our mm-hmm. eggs yes. and our cheese and our, our uh, meat products, because we don't want to think about it. And right. I think when communities make the conscious decision to think about it, then they are purposefully making a decision to connect with the world around them. And it changes the dynamics of how you live in the environment and how you exist in a society. So it's totally like part of, you know, we could, we could argue that part of the reason that the majority of consumerist white America and I mean, or like just generally consumerist America is so easily doing this shit is because they're they're not connected in these same ways they're not Mm -hmm. like actively doing these things that make them come face to face with the reality like if you know when the community in the pacific northwest saw that the the gray whale was on the endangered species list they made the decision as a community even though in their culture it's a sacred bond and connection that they have to the gray whale that like they made that active decision because they recognized what was happening to this animal that they had a sacred bond with and made the decision as a community to stop. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And so it's just like one of those things that I'm just like, it just takes like you were saying,
2: thinking beyond like literally one step. (laughs) Right. I think it is. I mean, it's so much more respectable when it is that that personal because it's, you know it's not a choice that you're making to consume something it's it's you know a much bigger choice to engage in something you know that does does harm something else but in a way that is connected with that thing and with your culture i think that's much more respectable and much more responsible than just going to the store and buying a pack of hamburger or something mm-hmm.
1: When we we Brandon and I went down to Mexico to visit his family for a quinceañera last year and his abuelita is like I think she's in her eighties and we got there and she was like covered in blood, sitting down at a table eating lunch and she just killed a pig for the party. And it was like I thought the process was super interesting and it was really fun to hang out and talk with her. And I learned all about how like they have some rituals around how you kill the pig and then the different ways you cut it up and use all the parts of it. And the whole family got involved with like making things out of it. And it was a really cool thing to be a part of. Um, And uh, maybe it was me being naive, but I was really surprised how my friends here were like horrified by that and not interested in seeing any of my pictures of it. What? They're just like, Ew, that's like she's a monster. And I was like, Are you kidding me? Like, you what, you if you can eat bacon, you should be able to at least watch somebody else break down a pig, you know? Right. But it mm-hmm. speaks to our our disconnectedness from the entire process. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course.
0: So wrapping it up with the Macaw, they have a sacred bond and the connection to the gray whale that has been crucial to their society since its inception. We have to stand up for the ability of indigenous cultures, not only to continue to find food in their traditional manner, but we also need to work to understand the cultural significance of these practices. Like We need to understand that maybe if it's not intuitive to us to have a spiritual bond with an animal or have a spiritual bond with something in nature, that doesn't mean that we we can't have respect and understanding there. And we need to respect and uphold their their ability to continue those practices indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Super fucking important. Absolutely. <laughs> now that I'm sweating, I think we're going to take a little music break. <laughs> and we'll be right back. Okay, so you know, I went off on my bullshit a little bit there. We all know what <laughs> <laughs> happened, uh, but let's talk about some success stories and traditional ecological knowledge because, you know, sometimes you gotta look at the positive. Even there's there's gotta be some stuff out there. Plus, this is this is one very small example. I actually read a couple of other articles about other examples but I wanted to focus on one and you know just know that there are there are ways that communities are fighting back against this so (sighs) one of the communities that has been able to fight back against the this complete bullshit is the Anishinaabe um, specifically the Ojibwe of northern Minnesota on the White Earth Nation Reservation Winona LaDuke, so if you don't know who she is, she's one of the baddest bitches in the game. I'm sorry for saying bitches, but like, I love her and I I mean it like she's one of the greatest humans. That's how I mean that term right now. Okay.
2: I think bad bitch is complimentary, but.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Winona uh, is Anishinaabe and lives and works on the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. She's a graduate of Harvard and Antioch universities, and she's written and taken action on a variety of Native American and environmental issues. She began something called the White Earth Land Recovery Project around the year 2000. Um, So the White Earth Land Recovery Project has been one of the key reasons why the White Earth and Anishinaabe have been able to move closer to food sovereignty. So one of the first things that the Anishinaabe did was create a tribal food policy. This policy allowed the Anishinaabe to weave their weave these ideals into their constitutional rights, which the United States and Canadian governments must respect because their territory does um, go north of the U.S. border. The tribal food policy outlines several reasons why the white earth people need to embrace food sovereignty into their lives. In the policy, they note that the increasing trend in type 2 diabetes and childhood obesity are key reasons why food sovereignty is important. In addition, the policy addresses the economic drain that food typically has on their nation. So out of the $8 million the tribal community spends on food per year, $7 million worth of it is spent on off-reservation food vendors. So that creates a significant drain on their economy that food sovereignty would lessen. And finally, the policy addresses the effect on global climate change that importing all their food has. So one of the ways that the Anishinaabe have begun to carry out this policy is by creating native harvest. Native Harvest is an online catalog that sells Native goods and other food to other Native and non-Native communities.
1: On their website, it says, we work to continue, revive, and protect our Native seeds, heritage crops, naturally growing fruits, animals, wild plants, traditions, and knowledge of our Indigenous and land-based communities for the purpose of maintaining and continuing our culture and resisting the global industrialized food system that can corrupt our health, freedom, And culture through inappropriate food production and genetic engineering. This project allows a positive flow of income as well as economic sovereignty to come into their community. In addition, even if there's not a lot of business associated with the website, the people who are harvesting the food can feed themselves. This is a definitive shift away from importing the majority of food that the White Earth community eats. They also have a local food and community self-governance ordinance. Uh, which tries to revitalize and promote traditional agricultural knowledge and practices to the White Earth Ojibwe community, enhance the local economy by promoting the production of traditional foods, promote holistic, healthy lifestyles while working in collaboration with community organizations and tribal health systems, increase food security and seed sovereignty from corporate entities like Monsanto, and Monsanto is horrible.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I just wanted to say really quickly about Monsanto (laughs) that like, uh, sorry, we just we I made a note for myself. Go off on this for a minute or no. (laughs) Monsanto does this thing where they they patent actual seeds like you shouldn't be able to fucking patent a seed, but whatever they do. So not only do they patent seeds, but they've fucking lobbied the shit out of the U.S. government to the extent that if seeds are planted of a crop that Monsanto has a patent on and that farmer is not using the patented seed, Monsanto can sue that farmer. So even if they have their own seed banking situation, which a lot of indigenous communities have started to do. Monsanto can go after them, but that's why in this specific community, it's woven into their constitution so that they can use international law to protect themselves from this shit. But even non-indigenous farming communities have to battle this shit that Monsanto is pulling. It's just a fucking, fucking,
2: so fucked. Yeah. (laughs) Part of the way that the patents on their seeds work, though, is that, like, they have a specific genetic code that's Mm. patented, and so if a farmer in one plot of land has Monsanto corn growing and then the person who has, you know, the plot of, you know, is growing corn in the plot of land adjacent to that one and the same bees cross pollinate, then it transfers the genetic material from the patented seeds to the non-patented seeds. Mm -hmm. So even if the farmer who didn't buy the Monsanto seeds, if they like, you know, grow any, um, you know, crops next year from the ones that they had this year, it will have the patented DNA. Um, and so Monsanto has actually gotten into lawsuits with these small farmers who have not, you know, purchased the license to their, to their crops because they didn't want Monsanto crops. Yeah. So they've actually like brought them to court.
0: Oh, fucking hell. All
1: right. Getting back to our list. Um, it continues on. To say that the local food and community self-governance ordinance should preserve local knowledge in traditional food ways, support community engagement through encouraging local foods between producers and consumers, and support processing and access to traditional harvested foods in the white earth, Anishinaabe territory.
0: Yes. So they're pretty fucking badass. And I hear what you're saying. You're like, why don't more people do this? Blah, blah, blah. Well, here's the fucking thing. <laughs> Northern Minnesota is like specifically, there isn't a, there's still a lot of wild land. So particularly their their rice production, it's all through these riverways and, and ponds, these rice ponds. And, you know, in a lot of other communities, that's just not possible. And I want to get into that a little bit. So... We really honed in pretty hard on the aspect of food sovereignty, um, but this issue, like pretty much all other issues, is really complicated. Food sovereignty starts with sovereignty. If the U.S. government, or whatever colonial power steering a given land, actually respected and upheld the treaties made with indigenous people throughout this nation, or if they actually cared to unpack the carefully overlooked in our high school textbooks, colonialism, and genocidal violence that European invaders had on this land, things would look a lot different. And yeah, this obviously is a capitalist issue as well. I wanted to, like, really finish by hammering home how messed up the physical land has become for most indigenous folks living on tiny slices of reservation land. So, as of 2014, and that number is probably... Much higher now. There are 532 Superfund sites in native country. Mm. Superfund, as we heard from Bipolar in the mass incarceration episode, is essentially a really fucked up way to describe land that has been completely spoiled or ruined, typically by toxic waste, nuclear waste, or the byproducts of oil and gas extraction. (sighs) Indigenous communities are not only the front lines of climate disaster and crisis. They are at way higher risk of health issues and deformities that come with exposure to massive levels of toxins in the air, water, and soil. So we cannot address food sovereignty fully without really understanding what we need to st- that we need to stop capitalist fuckery from expanding its fossil fuel addiction and even more than it already has. We need to, as blah, blah, we need to, as Naomi Klein <laughs> suggests in this changes everything, have a Marshall Plan for the Earth. She writes, "If we are to curb emissions in the next decade, we need a massive mobilization larger than any in history. We need a Marshall Plan for the Earth. This plan must mobilize financing and technology transfer on scales never seen before." It must get technology on the ground in every country to ensure we reduce emissions while raising people's quality of life. (sighs) I mean, like, okay, yes, I know Marshall Plan for the Earth sounds problematic, but also we're in a fucking dire situation here. (sighs) So we're running out of time to make these changes and they they really need to be radical and massive in nature. And we have to start with the communities who have been affected most. And I really don't think this is some white savior bullshit. We just really need to recognize that colonialism is one million percent wrapped up in the climate crisis and globalized neoliberal capitalism. And we need to recognize the damage that has been done to whole societies based on our behavior and decisions.
1: Uh, You're right. But damn, is that depressing? sorry Uh, it's just pretty pretty much it's all fucked Um,
0: (laughs) also if you are a person that really doesn't like swear words i really screwed that up this episode i'm
1: sorry (laughs) also but this may not be the podcast for you given the name i'm just gonna say
2: you were warned
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's true so because we don't like to just make everyone feel terrible without um also making them feel like they can try to do something about it We wanted to talk about how to get involved and just be supportive. So first off, educate yourself. Do some research, read some books, find out what you don't know. That's your job, um, not somebody else's. Next, talk to Native folks in your community. If you think you don't have a Native community, you should actually go out there and seek them out. And then once you find some people to talk to, get connected, find groups doing work in your area, show up as an ally to their protests, rallies, and direct actions. Don't take up space, particularly if you're white, just be another body showing solidarity. You can participate in capitalism in ways that directly benefit Native communities. Of course, we would like for us not to be in a capitalist society, but until the revolution, people still need to make money, and Indigenous communities have a much harder time making money than others. So there's websites like Native Harvest, which we talked about before, where you can purchase Native goods. There are often crafts and other things like that that you can find if you go onto a reservation, In areas that have large Native communities, little shops are all over the place, so buy direct um, in situations like that. You can also subscribe to newsletters that Native communities in your area put out so you can stay informed on what issues are happening and see if there are ways for you to be supportive there. Also, if you're a person who gives speeches or lectures, I suggest you start your speech by recognizing or honoring the Native land which you're presenting from. You hold a lot of power when you speak to a room full of people, and this is a really easy way to alert people to the everyday colonialism still taking place. Yes, Mm
3: -hmm. yes, yes,
0: yes. (sighs) I had a professor at UB that was trying to make this a campus-wide law, and hopefully she'll be a guest for us sometime soon to talk about academic colonialism, but she's pretty much hammered this home to me that like, if you can get up in front of a group of people and Not just jump right into whatever you're saying, but take a second and be like, we are on Seneca territory right now and I need to take a moment and honor that fact. Like people recognize that and people notice that and it takes it makes them confront the fact that they are participating in colonialism. Yeah, it's so powerful. (laughs) So, yeah, there's lots more, right? Of course, there's lots more. And we we don't know everything and we don't pretend to. So sound off on Twitter, at us. If you have a question or you don't want to ask publicly, you can always DM us. I know my personal DMs from at Socialist Willow is always open. So feel free to ask for clarification. Again, I'm no expert, but I am really grateful to the group of Cayuga who started me on this path of seeking understanding particularly in my own colonialism. Um and I definitely can direct people to some like particularly early reading resources and things like that. <laughs> Anything else?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think so.
3: Cool.
0: Well, thanks so much for being on this episode. (laughs) I feel like I spoke for way too long, so I really appreciate you both being on here because I'm just like, uh, I I don't want to just be
2: speaking into the void. I've had a good time listening to you, Laura. (laughs) Me too. Uh, Thanks
0: for contributing. Uh, So as always, you can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things, at Season of the Bee. Get on seasonofthebee.com to check out some different news and and get your merch. Uh, get your merch. Get your merch. We have real exciting news. We're going to do a live show in New York City August 11th. Yes. yes. Ooh, 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 ooh. So if you're in New York City or around New York City, just, like, book your flight now. That's fine um, for <laughs> August 11th. <laughs> Um, and we're not sure on the venue quite yet. But as soon as we have the venue, we'll open up tickets. What am I trying to say? We'll open up. You're waiting for you'll be able to buy tickets yeah. yes.
1: ahead of time.
0: My brain is fried. Uh, we're gonna <laughs> open up tickets. We're just gonna open them up. Open up the tickets. Smell them.
2: Do what you gotta do. <laughs> okay, we're gonna throw them on a bed and roll around in them. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Just open it all. Let it all go. Yeah, exactly. Rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, Yeah. Slide us some money on Patreon. And slide, slide into our DMs.
2: (laughs) If you know know things that we should know.
0: Yes. Oh, (laughs) and if you're a musician. Please email us, com. Oh, my God. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Because we really want to highlight your music. If you are a person who is not a cis man, that will be lovely.
1: Please email us at dot com.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Email us. Through the void. Send a carrier pigeon with your CD. I'll catch it. <laughs> Floppy disk. Your floppy disk. <laughs> Send me a fax. I have a fax machine at work. It's no problem.
2: Music can travel that way, right? Yeah, fax. The sheet music. I love
1: your music. Your band
2: and has it. all of its music on sheet music, I'm sure. Yes. All right. Well, All
0: right. I love the shit out of you.
2: <laughs> hey, I love you so much. <laughs>
3: Thank you. Love I you. The- Bye. 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 Season of the bitch.